Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Also joining us, from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, as I think everybody else. That includes Lauren DeYoung-Shulman, who is the Vice President for Research at the Partnership for Public Service. Hi, Lauren. Hi, I'm so happy to be back with my Deep State Radio friends. It's been a long time since I've done a podcast with you all, so thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you back here. And we all miss Bombshell, Lauren. Yeah, Bombshell was a great podcast. I also miss Bombshell. I think my dear colleague Rada would have a hard time fitting it in between running the Department of Defense and parenting two amazing children. But maybe someday we'll have a reunion. Yeah, those sound like demanding jobs, both of them. Also joining us from Washington, D.C., of course, we have Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. Hi, Rosa. How are you? Hi there, David. And we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. So three subjects today, and uh, we'll start, we'll pick up on the General Milley story, and then we're going to turn to two other stories, one that Lauren has been at the forefront of bringing to everybody's attention. But as all of you who are out there and listen to Deep State Radio know, Corey and Rosa are the world's leading experts on pretty much everything. And so... When the General Milley scandal, kerfuffle, debate, controversy erupted, the two leading newspapers in the United States said, well, we need their opinions. And so there we have Corey Shockey in the New York Times writing the definitive word on this and Rosa Brooks in the Washington Post writing the definitive word on this. Ed, we have been left out on this. Lauren, we have to defer to them. I'm going to start with Corey, and then I'm going to go to Rosa. Corey, you were involved in a a discussion we had on this on Thursday, but I thought it was interesting. Your op-ed in the Times went to a different point, a point about responsibilities of public servants. You want to talk about that? Sure, especially with Lauren on the podcast, because it's a subject of so much of her work. I think the Casa and Woodward account is needlessly salacious about General Milley's actions. And there are reasonable explanations for the events that they describe that don't involve undercutting civilian control of the military, that don't involve interposing himself between the commander-in-chief and the nuclear executors of the commander-in-chief's orders. I feel like they're unfair to General Milley's actual actions. 
At the same time, though, I despair that General Milley either suffers from the least discreet group of friends in Washington or that he is actually serving civil military relations very badly because I can't think of a single account I have read that isn't either based on General Milley's own direct commentary, like his interview with Susan Glasser, or people recounting his motives and exact words. And the president actually has a right to confidential information. The president has a right to military advice they don't take. And when the trust evaporates on the part of elected leaders, that they can have a conversation with the military in the room without it being recounted all over the place, they're going to stop having conversations with military folks in the room, or they are going to vet their military leaders by their politics rather than their military abilities. And both of those things are bad outcomes for civil military relations. But Rosa, where do you and I differ? What did I miss, my friend? Well, I, I don't think we differ on on much, but I, I guess, well, I have some questions, actually. Um, <laughs> one question is, frankly, about Bob Woodward. You know, whenever I read that kind of journalism where, you know, you're you're getting things narrated like as General Milley strolled down the hall to the Oval Office, he shuddered and wondered deep inside his heart if such, you know, and you think, what? Come on, Bob. Like, how do you know? Right. I I mean, I always am a little bit suspicious uh, when I read that kind of journalism. Bob Woodward is far from the only exemplar of that kind of journalism, but he he certainly typifies it where there is a lot of supposed insight into people's interior states and a great deal of paraphrasing. And it's very, very hard to know what to make of all that. It's very, very hard to know whether it is completely fiction, frankly, or whether it is based on something. But, you know, was it based on something Millie says? Is it based on somebody who knows Millie said they thought of Millie? Is it based on somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows Millie? said or thought. And and we, the reader, don't know that, which both means that there are lots of unanswered questions. How accurate are some of those paraphrases? How accurate are some of the implied assumptions about motivations and intentions and so on? Where's all the missing context? What what don't we know? Lots of questions about that. So I, I find it kind of hard to draw a whole lot of conclusions because I'm, I'm really pretty cynical about that kind of reporting. And maybe that's unfair of me. I mean, I, mean, I don't doubt that Woodward is a, is a careful reporter who can present a source. But I also don't doubt that there are lots of sources who are full of shit, frankly. You know, that people who want to make themselves seem important by implying that they know more about what Millie is thinking than Millie himself knows about what he's thinking and so on. You know, people lie and they make stuff up to make them seem close to the action. And I guess that gets to, you know, so my question about that is, what do you all think of that set of issues? My question more specifically for you, Corey, you're you're a little suspicious of Millie's motives. I mean, you, you clearly came out of this thinking, okay, maybe Millie didn't violate any principles of civilian control of the military, but it sure looks like at a minimum, he was doing a whole lot of thinking about how to make public things that maybe he shouldn't have made public. And, I, and I'm just wondering what makes you think that, particularly in light of, of sort of my questions about Woodward and, and Costa's reporting style. Are you basing that just on the reportage about their book? Are you basing that on, on other things? And then just a, a final observation. I a little bit think that 
the situation with Trump was so exceptional, so sui generis, that it may not be one that we can generalize from at all. You know, it may sort of be the exception that proves the rule that absolutely nobody does anything normal or can do anything normal when presented with just such a bizarre outlier situation. So sort of almost no matter what the answers are to the question about Woodward or the question about what you saw as the basis for your conclusions, Corey, I think my my general thought on this is that this is akin to the lawyer motto that you constantly hear in law school, you know, hard facts make bad law. Sometimes the world is just so weird. Don't try to generalize from it. And I have a feeling that that may be the situation we're in right now. Yeah. So if it were just the Woodward and Costa book, I would have the exact same reaction you did, Rosa. But I don't think I've read an account of the craziness of the Trump administration that doesn't have friends of General Milley describing what he was trying to do or sources close to General Milley. And I had the experience myself of having a whole bunch of General Milley's advocates and acolytes trying to persuade me, you know, not to be critical of him for Lafayette Square. It's more than just the Woodward book. So, Lauren, you may want to respond to what Corey said or what Rosa said, or you may want to ignore them altogether and say something entirely on your own. I had a similar reaction to Rosa in terms of, I think a lot of the Woodward story, the Woodward Costa story, seemed to be a lot of data points without good context. And the context would have made the story quite different. Who exactly was General Milley? talking to when he said, remember my role in this nuclear decision-making process. The absence of context on uh, having interagency be heavily involved in his outreach to his Chinese counterparts in the initial stories. Those later details are reported out by many colleagues in journalism, made a lot of difference. Well, some of those haven't been fully confirmed, but they they make a difference in terms of how you think about General Milley's motives, how you think about whether or not he was acting on his own as a you know a an independent person trying to like bring some sort of order to chaos or for actually everyone was part of like a pretty similar conversation it's just only his pieces that are being reported on so i definitely think woodward is not necessarily the most reliable narrator in the sense that he's maybe getting the quotations right but he may not be able to get who they were said to the context in the way they were said and anything else right and there's some incredible stories that were being circulated last week about a book that he wrote about john belushi that we can bring up separately if you want I'm very willing to accept that the Trump administration was a weird anomaly where a lot of norms, we just need to be deeply uncomfortable with how they were executed on. But there's a question I have about General Milley's state of mind. And uh, as he was over a series of months and in a series of stories, going to members of Congress, going to members of the media, going to friends and others to say, I am trying really hard to make sure nothing happens right now whether that be nuclear war or um, some kind of conflict with China or military strikes in countries where we are not at war at this point in time. And this is actually something that I've advocated before, that when if the chairman is deeply concerned about the state of civilian control of the military or the soundness of the president's ability to make decisions, then he shouldn't be quiet about that. He should be going to the Hill and others to be able to talk about that. The thing that most deeply concerns about me about that, though, is he was doing it for months and there wasn't really much of a response. Um, I mean, there was obviously the election, 
But Congress didn't really have much of a response. It actually made a hell of a difference. The rest of the cabinet didn't seem to have much of a response. It made any difference. I don't know why Millie was going out and doing all this engagement as Corey is, I think, right to be concerned about. But I can see how if somebody was doing that sort of outreach and didn't really feel as though the, the environment was changing, that they would freak out a lot. That's what, certainly that's what I would do. So, Ed, first of all, let me break it into two questions for you. Are there sources as a journalist who are full of shit? <laughs> I would hesitate to hesitate to. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> OK, that took that was like pulling teeth there. What's your reaction to all this? Look, I mean, if you remember the first of Woodward's trilogy on Trump rage, clearly there were two overwhelmingly predominant sources there who came off overwhelmingly well. And that was Steve Bannon and Don McGahn, um, the, the White House counsel. And, you know, Wood, Woodward's omniscience about, you know, what they were thinking to themselves as they shaved in the mirror that morning was, you know, confined to those two heads more than any other. And they came out looking pretty good. I can't say for sure whether Millie was the source. I'd be astonished if he wasn't. I mean, he, uh, he's very senior people have given briefings from the Pentagon, senior Pentagon people. And I've had a long briefing in December that was off the record, you know, from somebody very senior in the Pentagon. I think that, you know, Millie was very concerned that the perp walk, that in the words of people close to him, that he was subjected to in Lafayette Square the previous June, had taken the US Constitution sort of close to danger. Trump had put him in danger. He felt tricked. He probably, by deduction, felt that this might jeopardize his um, full ser- serving out of his full term, which I believe ends in October 2023. Corey can, you know, say, you know, how easy it is for a president to remove a, a chairman of a Joint Chiefs of Staff. But I think there was a combination here of genuine sort of DEFCON situation about Trump's mental stability and the fact that there were no boundaries on what he would do. That's the overwhelming issue, but also Millie's own reputation. And so we have uh, the most sensational sort of element of this book, Peril, being presented, I think, out of context in the most sensational way. And now we're getting, as Lawrence just pointed out, more and more context and filling in. It's less and less worrying. But, you know, I will say that when, uh, when Corey said that there might be some salacious elements to the reporting in this book. I was deeply shocked. I, I've, I, I can't believe that Woodward would do that, but we might have to accept that in this case, there is an element of that. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Yes, definitely well played. But let me, let me sort of shift gears here and not a story that was covered perhaps in a dubious way, but one that hasn't gotten covered at all. That is a big story. And that is the issue of the enormous number of vacancies at critical national security posts in the United States government. And honestly, although I was kind of aware of this at some level, there was a thread that Lauren did that really put this into perspective for me, for everybody who saw it. And I, I really felt it was important that we here try to flag this and, and go to the source on that. And so, Lauren, do you want to sort of make the case and perhaps if I could guide your hand just a little 
start with the point that you started with, which was how the 9-11 Commission viewed situation like this in the past. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about this. Just for some context for everyone who has not seen me tweet about this quite a bit over the past week, at the Partnership for Public Service, we run the Biden administration political appointee tracker in partnership with the Washington Post, which tracks the nomination, hearing status, and confirmation of many of the top presidential appointed Senate confirmed roles in government today. And that's anything from ambassadors to secretaries of defense to assistant secretaries, directors of the FBI, and so on. The way I started this thread a few days ago is that on 9-11, we had about 57% of key national security positions in place in the Bush administration. And this was considered at the time to be a pretty low number. And the 9-11 Commission cited this as a substantial barrier to the Bush administration's preparedness for 9-11, but also to its ability to respond to 9-11 in any way, both uh, around the globe and as well as domestically. And in their report, they made a recommendation that we should minimize as much as possible the disruption of national security policymaking during the change in administrations. And there has been a number of recommendations, both from them and others, about expediting such nominations through the Senate, whether or not some should be term positions, whether or not some should be career, or others should move to a non-confirmed status. Bottom line, doing it whatever we can to make sure that there are no vacancies in critical positions across the National Security Administration. So fast forward 20 years. And we had another disrupted transition as much or more so in many ways than the transition before 9-11. And in the Senate's confirmation process, we have only about 26%, a little over that now, of the new administration's appointees in 170 different key national security positions have been confirmed this year. So 57% year of 9-11. 20 years later, 26%. We have slowed down substantially in the ability to move nominees through the process. This is in part, we should have to recognize that there's two parts of this equation. There's the Biden administration's ability to vet and put forward their qualified nominees. And they have had fits and starts of this, but have actually been keeping up with their predecessors' trends, at least more recently. And then there's the Senate side, which has been increasingly politicized over the past uh, several decades, with it taking, I think, three to four times as long for nominees to move through the process now as it did in the Reagan administration. So at this point in time, across the State Department in particular, but across Department of Defense, Department of Justice, and DHS, we have vacancies and roles that matter, not just ones that you've never heard of. We have a single ambassador to a country that's been confirmed. We have had holds on the State Department leadership from from day one. As soon as they get across the finish line, they're put on hold in terms of nomination. And the ability of these agencies to move forward with any sort of proactive policy agenda is held up by these consistent vacancies. We have incredible acting officials in these roles, many career officials who've been doing these roles very well. But they're substitute teachers. They're not able to do proactive policy. They are limited in their ability to do crisis management. They're limited in their ability to engage with foreign counterparts and otherwise. And this is just a working our national security system with one hand behind its back 
and any number, a number of senators, but Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley at the top of the list are doing everything they can to prevent any progress from being made here. Um, well, thanks for that overview. And I'd like to turn to Corey and then Rosa and Ed. So Lauren is exactly right. This is huge and consequential and slowing an administration from being able to put its people in place after they have won an election is bad for our country. And it's especially bad when it's done in the way that Senator Cruz has done it, which is a blanket, we're not confirming anybody. If senators have actual objections to specific appointees, they should feel free to bring that up in confirmation hearings, because that's what confirmation hearings are for, and to try and win over their colleagues. But the equivalent of a pocket veto by not permitting anything to move forward is actually a populist move. It's, it's corroding the institutions of democracy for political gain. And I think we should all stand against it and try and shame members of Congress. I know how unlikely that is to affect Senator Cruz or Senator Hawley, but this is bad for democracy in America. And it's bad for American security. My question for Lauren is, how do we stop it? What should we do? So I actually do believe, as much as I think you're right, that shaming senators is is a tough bargain. I think that raising the issue consistently actually helps. Last week, we had, I think, three or four State Department nominees get through and get confirmed by voice vote on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, And of course, immediately after that was when Senator Hawley said, I'm not letting anyone through until the upper national security leadership of the Biden administration resigns. So I think bringing attention to it is one big thing. And then encouraging both the White House and these agencies to be working behind the scenes to move these forward. This isn't just a matter of holding up statistics for them. Like there's, as Corey alludes to, there's political bargains to be made here. Probably not with those who are saying I'm effectively pocket vetoing every single one of them, but with Senate leaders and with others who would be required to take up time on the Senate floor um, and, and also probably make bargains behind the scenes of what this would mean to enable some of this leadership to get through. But longer term, I think there's actually a great question to ask about, do we actually need this many Senate confirmed appointments? There's over 1,200. A lot of those are for positions that you've never heard of that are on advisory boards or overseas scholarships or other things or are part-time in nature. But a lot of them are for roles that are extremely technical, bureaucratic, budget-based, or operational. It might be better off if we had somebody who is in that job for a longer than a four-year period. Most Senate-confirmed roles are usually only a place for about a year and a half or so. It's something that the Biden administration should deeply consider, and obviously they would need the, the Senate's um, help with this is whether or not some of these roles should be downgraded to a non-Senate-confirmed political appointee or even a career person who may have a better perspective on cybersecurity challenges over a course of five years than somebody who's just going to be in and out of that role for 18 months or so. As someone who was denounced by name by Ted Cruz, I'm very much in favor of uh, having fewer Senate-confirmed positions. Um, no, it's ridiculous. This one asshole is basically hijacking the entire U.S. government, in a sense, by as Lauren says, it's not like he's saying, well, I have an issue with this person. 
you know, in particular, um, although since he has an issue with practically everybody, that would be a problem too. You know, he's, he's just being an asshole basically. And he's, I mean, he is behaving like he's eight, which is typical of Ted Cruz. So it's, it's awful. It's irresponsible. You know, it goes back to our, our previous discussion of Millie, you know, that, that what do you do when none of the branches of government are doing what they're supposed to do? You know, when everything is broken because you have a few individuals who are willing to just hold entire branches of government hostage, essentially, to their partisan uh, visions of the world. So I, I, I can't really add anything at all to what Lauren said, other than that she is 100 percent right about everything. The only other thing I would add, and again, sort of linking this back in a slightly sideways way again to the Millie stuff, as you know, Trump himself left many, many key positions vacant, not in that case because it would not be possible to get people through. Uh, in that case, obviously, Ted Cruz was on, on his side, but simply because he couldn't be bothered and so on. So I, I do think just going back to that Millie issue again for a minute, that the part of the crisis atmosphere at the Pentagon in both the run up to the presidential election and the period immediately after January 6th, when it comes to sort of civilian control was where were the civilians at the Pentagon? There just weren't that many of them, you know, that mostly there were these partisan hacks who'd been put into acting positions, but the sort of usual civilian leadership who ought to be there at the Pentagon, regardless of what administration it is, just weren't there. And that created all kinds of problems, too, I think, in terms of adding to that sense of, of panic, of just, you know, the whole system is breaking down, uh, possibly irreversibly, you know, we need to save it somehow or other. Rosa, just as a side on the, the acting positions challenge, particularly in the Trump administration, that was absolutely a strategy the Trump administration yeah. pursued of not just not feeling it because they could, as you said, couldn't be bothered, but to deliberately put right. into place yeah. people who would not have gotten through the uh, loyalists, yeah, creation process or would have likely never been nominated in the first place. And what that resulted in, in many cases, and that what it's resulting in today actually is similarly is that you end up with people in acting roles who are doing more than one job. And all of these mm -hmm. jobs are impossible anyway. Like I think should be acknowledged that these are hard jobs we're asking people to do. But in an acting role, whether you're a career official or a political official, odds are you're doing whatever job it is you're acting for, as well as the job that you were assigned as your day job to begin with. So it's an impossible position to ask people to be put in. On top of which, it leaves you open to a lot of legal challenges, depending on the kind of decisions you're pursuing of whether or not you're even legally allowed or authorized to make the kind of decisions you're, you're signing off on while you're in that role. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think eight-year-old um, uh, assholes cannot be shamed or to, or to be the, the, the title of this podcast. But the question I would have is, you know, your findings were for the 170 national security-related positions, but as you mentioned, there's more than 1,000 in total positions. Uh, and your emphasis, uh, it seems quite rightly, is on the Senate end of the holdup. But from what I understand for non-national security security-related holdups, there is a pretty slow output coming from the Biden side too. Um, and there have been, you know, some of which is to do with just the crazy world in which we live. Uh, and doing background checks on people is just a dramatically harder as time goes on because of social media, because of all the things that you could trip somebody up with uh, in a confirmation hearing. But also there are diversity goals that in some fields are harder to fill than others. And then there's a bandwidth problem 
you know, of, of getting the, the FaceTime to approve people being nominated. Is it fair to say that this isn't just an eight-year-old uh, asshole problem? I think you're right that it is. It's a big cycle there. If you look at, for example, the Department of Energy, I think it's nine roles that don't even have a nominee yet. It's not like they're waiting in line. They don't have a nominee yet. Same thing is true for a number of other agencies that not only have a third to a half of their nominees in the pipeline, but are still waiting on a number of roles to be put forward. At this point, we still don't even have a director for the Office of Management and Budget nominated and a lot of other key positions that you would think would be important to an administration's policy portfolio. But the, the, the cyclical part of this is that I think the Biden administration is, one, noticing the pace at which we're moving through nominees in the Senate. They don't have a lot of incentive to actively move people through a vetting process on a quick basis because we have this big this big blockage in terms of people already getting through. It would just be adding to a longer list of folks who are still waiting. That might be a good political talking point, but from a practical perspective, it's not doing much. The second is, I have said before, and I still think this is probably true, that the nature of the transition that they faced from November to January meant that time they might have otherwise spent on going through political nominations and vetting processes, getting the president's input on some of these, and also getting his thumb on the scale on others was taken up by a insurrection on the Hill, um, a president who refused to say that he was going to step down or not, and any number of other political challenges. So at this point in time, the president is doing his day job and probably not much occupied with whether or not an assistant secretary is in place or the cybersecurity lead in another place has gotten nominated because he's understandably is trying to get through things day to day. What I don't know, and I think I, I can hope that is the case, is that there are people in each agency and within the White House who are advocating for this, who see the challenge and see the harm that it causes to have so many vacancies everywhere. But something that the Biden administration did do, which I think I'm just still not sold on it was a good idea or not, was instead of weighting themselves toward appointees who had to be confirmed, on day one, they tried to get in place over a thousand political appointees who did not have to be confirmed. They spent their vetting time and their political influence on getting those folks in the door so that agencies wouldn't be empty on day one. But that trade-off of that is like, we are where we are right now in terms of those nominees. So I think you're right that there are there's two sides to this. And frankly, there's more sides of this too, because there's just not a lot of pressure from political constituencies about getting nominees through. But there's uh, I, at the moment, I would say the greater burden is on the Senate in terms of their significant slowdowns they have across not just the national security space, but across all the other agencies as well. I sort of have a, a bunch of responses to this, which I'm going to rattle off fairly quickly here, coming from having sort of studied these processes a lot. One is this is a big scandal. It's outrageous that it's reached this point. Take any of the current controversies over foreign policy execution and ask yourself if not having the right people in place, not having sufficient manpower at a high level to oversee these things or implement it, not having ambassadors in place, et cetera, contributes. Of course it contributes. So it's a, it's a serious problem. One issue that arises in my, my own mind is that the congressional approval process has some benefits. 
that has benefits in the context of a president who might be seeking to do things uh, as Trump did. You know, it, it provides a, a kind of a, a check. And so not approving people and leaving it entirely up to the White House does take, diminishes the congressional oversight role somewhat. And Lauren, I'd like to come back to you on that just to, to get your reaction to that. But, you know, it's not well known perhaps to a lot of people, but there are a lot of the most important jobs in the government, having said what I just said, that don't require congressional approval, like the national security advisor or, you know, senior people at the NSC. In fact, the, one of the reasons White House staff has grown so much is that those jobs don't require approval. Most of those jobs don't require approval. Of course, you mentioned one that's open, the Office of Management and Budget, and goes back to the other point, which is the person who was originally nominated for that job was blocked, despite being well-qualified, for Twitter activity, which is just, you know, goes to Ed's point. It's very hard to get people approved. But there is an issue here. I, you know, I think to me, the, the, the right reaction is not to let senators pocket veto people, you know, is to eliminate that abuse of senatorial power rather than to take Congress out of the equation. Although perhaps cutting down the number of congressionally approved roles is, is a good step there. Lauren, do you want to respond to anything that I've just said before we go on to another brief point? Sure. So I, I think it's absolutely critical to recognize Congress's role in the advising consent process. However, the number of Senate confirmed positions has actually grown substantially, even though the Senate has tried to cut them over time, something like 60 percent from 1960 to 2016 or so. And anytime there's a new challenge that comes up, we either create it, either are creating a new position to be confirmed creating a new agency or talking about it and saying we need the czar or some sort of Senate confirmation confirmed person for something else. But if the Senate is not actually moving to have these people go through, then they are actually just absenting themselves from a process that they say is their one of their key points of leverage. On top of which, I mean, the Senate has a lot of oversight powers that they don't utilize very well at the moment anyway. Uh, if you watch their hearings, the, uh, the one the other day with the Olympic gymnasts was just an embarrassment of grandstanding rather than actually any effort at what go good governance looks like. And most others seem to be similar where they are using them for having hot takes be put out or quick clips you can put out as opposed to actually trying to educate themselves on issues. Never mind the processes of uh, attending briefings, going on CODELs, any number of other things that they can use to actually have an official or unofficial oversight process. They have other mechanisms. They're not using those. And they're not actually using this one terribly well either. So I don't have a ton of sympathy in terms of whether or not the Senate needs to hold on to an oversight process that it is currently abusing at worst and just not terribly well utilizing it at best. On top of that, I think that there's, um, in addition to the growth, like I said before, there's a lot of administrative or human capital and operational focused positions that would really benefit from having somebody in place over a longer period of time, as well as ones that are in the realm of cybersecurity. There was an op-ed in the Post a couple of months ago that was quoting, I think, either the chief of staff to the Department of Energy or others saying, we actually would really rather have our cybersecurity roles be all career because you can't have somebody come in and say, we want to remake the critical infrastructure cybersecurity in the course of 18 months. And oh, by the way, that person had to get through the U.S. Senate. It's just not going to be possible to execute. So I think there's going to be strategic moves um, that can make this process a lot easier for ourselves. 
And then maybe with a lower burden on Senate committees, we might see a better process emerge. Agree. Very thoughtful. This is a huge issue. I haven't seen it really covered beyond Lauren's Twitter thread in the, in the way that it should be. Hopefully this will trigger some conversation. We've got about four or five minutes left to go. I'm going to bring up one other issue very quickly to get some reactions. Um, and I'm going to start with Rosa. If, if David, don't is, make me talk about Australia and submarines. I won't make you talk Good. about Australian submarines directly. But if you are going to create an alliance between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the U.S., would you pronounce it AUKUS? Would you <laughs> refer to it going forward as AUKUS? No, no, I would not. I would come up with a much better, more appealing acronym, preferably one that was a pun and that rhymed with other acronyms. See, you should be the secretary of acronyms. There's no question here. Corey, what? Corey has a suggestion. Uh, Corey would like to relay the suggestion of her AEI colleague, Danielle Pletka, which explained why the French had to be excluded, because if you add an F onto (laughs) the start of the acronym, it really doesn't convey the message you think. But of course, David, I am to prim my 19th century um, spinster self to actually say what that acronym would be. My favorite version of this conversation was saying that Le Figaro should have a headline coming out that says, Jacques. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you see how she did that? That was elegant. That was it was erudite and it was not vulgar as you were for it. We should put we should be put in charge of all foreign policy naming opportunities and puns. The best one of all time was early in the Obama administration when a soldier eager to get fired from the NSC, when challenged to rename the global war on terror, came up with joint interagency homeland active defense. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's very that's very good. Everybody's <laughs> rushing for a piece of paper now, but you know, work that out after the episode is over. I'm gonna get a very, very quick set of reactions from anybody who wants to react. Ed, the French are really angry. Are they justified? Yeah, to some degree. I think they're making too much of it, but you know, they, they were treated pretty coldly and brutally by the Australians. I mean, all, all three, but the Australians, you know, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was standing there with Macron barely two weeks ago on the, at the Elysee, uh, reaffirming the strategic partnership, not raising, you know, um, any hint that he was about to torpedo the submarine deal. You can understand that French pride has, has suffered I'm a little bit skeptical of of, uh, the French saying European pride has suffered because this was a French contract, not a European contract. And in fact, they beat the Germans and the Japanese to this contract initially and were late on it. And according to my Australian friends, we, you know, taking August off (laughs) and stuff like that. We will see how, you know, whether this leads into de Gaulle 2.0 and France really sort of throwing its toys out of the pram. I imagine that um, it's going to it's going to calm down a little bit and it's not going to be quite that bad. Okay, Rosa has said she doesn't want to say anything. I want to give Corey the last word. So Lauren, do you have anything you want to say? 
Anytime the French complain about why they aren't let into certain cool kids clubs in the national security space, I would just remind them that they have made choices about economic espionage that they think is very important to them that others aren't really that thrilled with. So it's great that they're mad. I understand why they're mad. They should also do a little bit of soul searching. Here, here. Um, having well, spent a lot of time when I was in the government tracking some of that stuff. Here, here. Corey, the last word. I agree with both Ed and Lauren. Um, I think the French are have lots of soul searching to do, but they are right to be outraged. As Iskander Raymond said, the right way to do this is to cancel the French contract, have a decent interval, and then make the announcement on something new, different, and better. That the Australians didn't do it is bad for Australia's relationship with France, but we also didn't do it. And nobody's responsible for our relationship with France except us. And and especially when the Biden administration is grandstanding about America's back for our alliances, um, it's a bad move. Okay, there you have multiple opinions. Rosa will maintain her silence. I see, I see her making faces, but I assume that's because of indigestion. <laughs> General displeasure with the world. Yeah, can, I, yeah. can I add to the acronymic vulgarity? Yes, of course. Um, if if Scotland and Northern Ireland leave Britain, it will become the former United Kingdom of England and Wales. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, there, there you go. That was kind of that acronym was kind of the French response to the British role in this, which was, well, why are you angry at the British? And they said, well, because they're awful people. You know, it was kind of, <laughs> it was, it was we, we didn't expect the British to behave well on, on, on all of this, which, by the way, was just slightly undiplomatic of them. In any event, uh, I did want to touch upon this issue. I'm so glad to have been able to dig a little deeper on the Millie issue. Um, I encourage everybody to go and read Corey's uh, piece in the Times and Rose's piece in the uh, Washington Post. Also, Lauren's uh, thread on this subject at Twitter. What's your Twitter hang- handle, Lauren? Lauren, R-A-E-D-E-J. There you go. And yep. I encourage <laughs> you to uh, go there. It's an important subject and, and candidly one worthy of a lot more attention, particularly the odious role played by Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley in this, although there's so much to choose from when you are looking at their odiousness. In any event, we will have more on these and other subjects very soon on the upcoming episodes of Deep State Radio. Go to the dsrnetwork.com for information on these. Click membership, help support what we're doing. And uh, in the interim, thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thanks to everybody for listening and be careful out there folks uh there's there's still a lot of covid risk bye bye